If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 15, we're going to jump in here um, to our text this morning, and I will say at this point, sermon bingo has begun. So be looking, paying attention here. So John chapter 15, we're going to read verses 9 through 11. These are the words of Jesus. He's speaking to his disciples. And he says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, context is an important thing for us to consider as we study God's word. And I want to give you the context of this. We're about to celebrate Christmas. We're about to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. The, the, the word the theologians use is incarnation. Amen, indeed. The incarnation is the arrival, right, of Jesus into this world. In, in, in flesh, you know, being here with us. These words in John 15 come from the night before Jesus was arrested, the night that Jesus was arrested, the day before he died on the cross for our sins. And the Gospel of John takes an extended look at this final night. There's all of this teaching, there's this account of the events of that final night, and it's the words that he's speaking to his disciples. It's this wonderful passage here and this wonderful teaching, and John 15 talks about the idea of being connected to Jesus, that we need to be rooted in him, connected in him, that we are... that. Um, He is the vine and we are the branches. And our connectedness to Jesus produces all the good things in our lives. And in this passage, Jesus talks about something that's very important. He talks about, first of all, this idea that um, it's not said explicitly in this passage, but this idea that if we love Jesus, we will obey his commands. The way he says it in this passage is, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There's this book that's pretty famous called The Five Love Languages, and and it's a helpful resource. The idea of the point is to say, or the idea of the book is to say that the way that we show love, the way that we receive love, is typically people do it in, in certain patterns. There are certain things, love languages, as the book talks about. That, that the ways that people express love and the ways that people receive love and the five love languages are words of affirmation, gifts, physical touch, quality time, and acts of service. And so the theory behind the book is that you tend to express love in maybe the way that you would tend to receive it. And it's important to learn about the people in your life what their, what their love languages are. So if you're a parent, it's helpful to know the way your children receive love. If you're married, it's helpful to know um, the way your spouse receives love. God is, or Jesus is saying here that God's love language, did you catch it in the passage and what I was saying? God's love languages, language is obedience. It is obeying God's commands. That's the way God receives love. That's the way we express our love to God, is by following him 
and by obeying him. And then Jesus finishes up this passage here by talking about, he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I want us to consider together this morning this idea of joy. And if you want to interchange or exchange the word happiness, I think it's appropriate to do in some context, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Okay, so joy and happiness. Jesus says, I want you to know this. My teachings have been given to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I find it encouraging that God is concerned about how it feels to live our life, that God cares about joy, that God cares about our happiness. I want to say, too, that our society believes that being happy is very, very important. Our, happiness, our, our, our society is sort of obsessed with this idea of happiness. Next time you go to the bookstore, I, I want you to look, or maybe you go to, don't go to bookstores anymore, but they're fun. I think you should go to bookstores. Uh, if you're looking on Amazon or something as well, that's another thing you could do. But look for the number of books that are released with happiness in the title. It is insane how many books have come out that talk about happiness, the pursuit of happiness, this desire for happiness, the happiness code, the happiness, you know, all happiness is in the, the title of so many different books. In a lot of major universities, so these Ivy League schools, there are classes on positive psychology, which is sort of the scientific study of happiness. And those classes are some of the most well-attended classes on campus, usually with, with waiting lists for them. People are taking this idea of happiness very seriously, this pursuit of it, this desire for happiness. But there's this weird irony because people don't tend, seem to be super happy in our culture right now, do they? Even with this emphasis, this extreme focus on happiness, it seems like people are more miserable than they've been in recent history. In fact, all the studies that talk about happiness um, indicate that this is the case. If you look at our advances in our culture today, we've got you know, medical technology, regular technology, education levels are higher, people are reading, you know, that, that before the literacy rates were a lot lower than they are now. All of these things are better. Things that our ancestors would have thought made of, would have made us much more joyful, much more happy. And now that we have all these things in our society, it, it seems that people are actually less happy than they used to be. In fact, one study said the average teenager in modern times is experiencing the same levels of stress and anxiety that the average psych ward patient experienced in the 1950s. We, we see the studies come across our news feeds, we see this information, and we see the people around us, and we know that people are struggling in the area of joy and happiness. And it seems, in fact, that there's a desperate pursuit of happiness. Right, we get that phrase, pursuit of happiness, from the Declaration of Independence. And last year, I was on a vacation with my wife and my kids, and we were in uh, Washington, D.C., or actually, it was earlier this year, September of this year. And I got to see the Declaration of Independence in person, and I was restraining all of the, like, I, I wanted to make a reference about how I was here to steal the, national, or the, the Declaration of Independence, like in that movie, National Treasure, but I was trying to refrain myself. We did whisper back and forth, my son and I, about, about this idea of stealing the Declaration of Independence. 
But when you go up and look at it, you can barely read it, by the way. Has anyone seen it in person, the Declaration of Independence in Washington, D.C.? You wait in this line, and then you go and look at it, and there it is. It's an important document, but it's very faded. You saw it. I know. I was with you. Um, But on it is is this, it's a Declaration of Independence, and it uses this phrase that we're all about, like, our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Like, this is something that we are entitled to pursue as a culture. It's something that matters to society. Pascal, who was a uh, scientist, uh, mathematician, some might call him a theologian. I already said that one earlier, but um, he said this about happiness. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. What a twist at the end. There's this idea that this is what fuels us, this desire to pursue happiness. Our culture is obsessed with it, but they're not finding it. And is God concerned about that for us? Does he care about what it feels like to walk through this life? Absolutely. Jesus said as much in John 15. He says, I'm I'm telling you these things, I'm giving you this teaching because I want my joy to be in you and for your joy to be full. This idea, this frantic pursuit of happiness. I'm about to ruin a song for you, so apologies in advance uh, to this, but there's this song by Pharrell Williams that was on the Despicable Me, either one or two soundtrack, I can't remember which one, but it's called Happy. You know the song? Okay. You're just gearing up for what I'm about to say. You're ready to mark the box. Okay. <laughs> the song is about happiness, but there's, when it gets to the chorus of the song, he just, the, the phrase, happy, 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 just keeps repeating itself over and over. And to me, based on this kind of stuff we're talking about, how our society is, is pursuing happiness and not finding it, that song sounds almost hollow to me. Like, people are frantically searching for happiness. I'm happy. Like, they're trying to convince themselves that they're happy. That's what it sounds like to me. Amen, indeed. Thank you. Now, I told you that we um, were talking about joy this morning, and I've been using the word happiness quite a bit the last few moments here. But these words are very connected to one another. And I want to read you something from an online resource that talks about this Greek word that is translated joy. And I want to try to pronounce this Greek word for you, and I might get it wrong. You got to get a little flimmy kind of thing in in your voice to say it right. But it's this word, hurrah. That's the Greek word for joy, which almost sounds like you're saying hurrah, right? Or hooray. It's like this, this word that describes um, what, what joy is and sounds almost like joy when you say it in, in the Greek. But here's the description of what this word means. Joy is a feeling of inner gladness, delight, or rejoicing. Joy in the New Testament is virtually always used to signify a feeling of happiness that is based on spiritual realities and independent of what happens. Now, let me pause there for a moment because a lot of people will make the distinction between happiness and joy because they say happiness is based on what happens. 
It's based on your circumstances. You have it if things are going well. And they'll say joy is something that is not dependent upon circumstances. And I absolutely agree with that. But in the Bible, this idea of happiness um, and the blessed life are connected. In fact, if you read Psalm 1, that talks about blessed is the person who walks, um, does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but they're like a tree planted by the, um, by the river that brings forth fruit. That word blessed literally means happy. If you read the Beatitudes, where Jesus is talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, that word blessed literally means happy. So there's this connection um, with happiness and joy, and they look very similar, but happiness maybe is more dependent upon circumstances than joy is. I continue this quote. It is a depth of assurance and confidence, joy, a depth of assurance and confidence that ignites a cheerful heart. It is a cheerful heart that leads to cheerful behavior. Joy is not an experience that comes from favorable circumstances, but is God's gift to believers. Joy is a part of God's very essence, and his spirit manifests this supernatural joy in his children. Joy is one of the fruits of the spirit. That's what that's referencing. Joy is the deep down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of the person who knows all is well between himself and God. There is a chorus from an old spiritual song that fits this idea. Happiness happens, but joy abides. Jesus and then the rest of Scripture tells us, what, how do you live a flourishing life? Where does flourishing come from? Where does true happiness and joy come from? Jesus says it is through his teachings, which we get this idea that, that God's way is a much more restrictive way to live, that God's not that interested in your happiness. He's more interested in your obedience. But the idea here is that those things are connected. Our happiness, our joy, and our obedience overlap. And then when we experience that kind of joy, we tap into something so deep that it goes beyond our circumstances. So we can say things like in Romans that we rejoice even our, in our afflictions, or in James that when trials come your way, you can still have joy in that, knowing that those trials will produce, will produce good things in your life. You can rejoice even in your trials because you are tapping into something deeper, the joy of the Lord. The reality for all of us is that, and certainly in our culture this is true, is that we're not very good at figuring out what will make us happy. If you're trying to think about what will make you happy outside of Scripture and you pretend like you never heard the verse I just read, the verses I just read, you will find that you are that what you think will make you happy um, does not make you happy. In fact, some of the most miserable people I've ever met were all about pursuing happy, happiness, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the circumstances. I remember when I was a kid, I, I was sure that if I had a certain amount of money when I grew older or had certain things or was able to drive a vehicle of, of some kind, then I would be happy. That would make me happy. We, we are given a consumeristic message from our culture that we will find happiness through having stuff, through what we have. There's a, uh, speaking of stuff that might make you happy, but probably won't, um, a new Lego store opened in Spokane. Did you hear about this? Yeah. Yes, pretty excited. I hear the excitement here. 
I, I, am, I am excited that the Lego store is open. I haven't visited it yet. But when it first opened, people were so excited, they lined up for blocks. I'll wait for it. Okay. Now, you may not think that was a joke, but that was indeed a joke. So we tend to think that uh, it is through having certain things or having certain possessions that we will become happy, whether that's Legos or something else. But the reality is we're actually not very good at, at determining what will make us happy. There was one famous study by um, some scientists that was quoted in, Dan, in a TED Talk given by Dan Gilbert, so a very widely viewed TED Talk All right, uh, by Dan Gilbert. And he talked about this idea, uh, this study that was done for people that won the lottery versus people who were uh, paralyzed in an accident of some kind. And he said that their set point, or the, the, the happiness of those people one year later was the same as their happiness before either that accident or before that windfall of money. And the research behind happiness, which there's been a lot of research done, they say that only, only uh, 10% of our happiness is derived from our circumstances. Whatever circumstances you might be going through, that's 10% of the level of happiness that you experience. 50% of your level of happiness comes from just your makeup, your personality, your DNA, the way you experience life, that leaves another 40% that is in your control, which is what you tend to dwell on, what you think about, what you do, how you live. So that's the formula that is given for where happiness comes from, at least from a scientific perspective. One of the things that I've noticed that's been um, tough to, to witness in recent times, there, there's the influencers, the people that will tell you about how to find happiness, um, two notable examples, and I'm not going to go into their stories. You can look, look them up if you want to. But Tony Shea, who, wrote, who was the founder of Zappos and wrote a book about happiness, and then Dave Hollis, who was a big uh, Instagram and social media influencer who also spoke in depth about happiness, turned out to be some of the most unhappy people. And, and their stories were very sad. And again, I'm not going to go into... The, their, their, the tragedy of their stories. But there's examples of this where people think something will make them happy and it turns out they're wrong, they're mistaken. As followers of Christ, if happiness is our goal, if we look at happiness as the ultimate thing that we are after, then we will give up obedience to God if you come upon something that you think will make you happy. But if being in close relationship with Jesus is your goal, if pursuing him is your ultimate and highest aim, you will find that you are much happier in the long run. We tend to justify these things that behavior, decisions that people will make, and we say this phrase culturally, as long as you're happy. Regardless of what someone may be doing, regardless of what self-destructive behavior our culture says, as long as you're happy, and it turns out people that pursue happiness as their highest goal tend to not actually get it. Our culture is confused about what makes us happy and where joy comes from. I love this quote by Calvin Miller. He says this, The world is poor because her fortune is buried in the sky and all her treasure maps are of the earth. And I feel like that quote needs some explanation a little bit. Just this idea, you know, a treasure map. This is where the treasure is to be found. 
And the treasure map does not even tell you that you're looking in the right location. The treasure map, the, the fortune's buried in the sky, but all the earth offers is, is or all of the, the joy that the, the, the world thinks it needs is on the earth. Speaking of treasures and treasure maps, Matthew chapter 13 talks about, this is a parable of Jesus earlier in his ministry before the passage we read in John 15. He says this in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 45, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. There's two very brief parables that are, that are mentioned here. The first one is this idea of someone just walking through a field. They stumble upon a treasure hidden in a field. And the person says, I've got to have this field, whatever the price is. He covers up the treasure. He goes and finds out how much the field costs. But in order to purchase the field, he has to sell everything he has, get rid of everything in order to purchase the treasure in that field. But it says that when he did this, he was experiencing joy. He wasn't discouraged about having to give up all the things that he would give up. Now, here's a kind of a modern time example of this. If I were to tell you that if you were able to bring $100,000 cash to me at the end of three weeks, that you would be rewarded with $10 million. I, not all of us in the room can come up with $100,000 cash. For me, I wouldn't be able to do that. It would require um, me selling some things, me getting rid of some things, me selling vehicles maybe, maybe even my house to be able to come up with that amount of money But would I be discouraged about doing any of that? Would you be discouraged if that was the exchange, if you could somehow come up with $100,000, even if you had to borrow or, you know, whatever, to have $10 million in exchange? Of course not. You'd be thrilled to do that. You would do it with joy. And Jesus says, my kingdom is like that. To have what I offer is better than anything out there by comparison. And there's a joyful pursuit of God and his goodness Um, that rewards us, that is the rewarding way to live. Jesus said in this passage that um, I want you to have fullness of joy. And there's a passage of scripture that means a lot to us as a church, and it's it's kind of a key passage for us. It's Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. Before I read that, though, I need to... uh, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Um, Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Mm-hmm. This passage means a lot to us as a church because it, it has this phrase, path of life, that in your pre- you make known to be the path of life, which is really where kind of our, the, the origin of our church's name, this life roads, this idea of this path of life, this way of living with Jesus. But then it says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Same thing that Jesus talks about. This is King David writing these words many years before. 
at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus came that you might have life and have it to the full. John Piper is a pastor, longtime pastor and writer in Minnesota, and um, he, he talks up, he coined this phrase, Christian hedonism. And if you've heard the term hedonism before, it's this idea of a pursuit of pleasure. You're just all about pleasure, which pleasure is different from joy, by the way. He says, Christian hedonism is that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. He says, this drive for happiness, this drive for joy that people experience should be used to push us towards Jesus because he is the source of our ultimate joy and happiness. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. In the video explaining, and he's written on this um, a great deal, but he talked about this in a video, a 10-minute video that I watched on his ministry's website, and he refers to something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was written back in the 1600s. And a catechism is a question and answer format way of talking about faith, what we believe. And it asks a question and then it provides an answer. And people would memorize both the question and the answer to help them understand what Christians believe. And this is a very old statement here. But it's this. The question is this. What is the chief end of man? Which in modern, more modern terms would be, what, what is the purpose of humanity? Why, is, why are humans created? What is our purpose? And then here's the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That sounds like something that that we need and the world needs. But we aim too low sometimes. We aim at lesser pleasures. Instead of the primary source of pleasure, the primary source of our joy, which is God himself and being in a relationship with him, we aim for lesser things. And we miss out on the joy that he provides. C.S. Lewis said, if, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like ignorant children who want to continue making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I want to say to you this morning that the world needs more joy, which is another way of saying the world needs Jesus. And I want to say to any of you in this room or anybody watching online, that have been searching for happiness and coming up empty, I want to offer and invite you to try Jesus. Jesus offers what nothing in this world offers, which is true and lasting joy, a fullness of joy, a joy that can only come from being in a relationship with your creator. This is how we were made. This is how we were designed. This is what we need more than anything. Try Jesus, if you haven't, you're invited to begin a relationship with him. Jesus purchased life for all those who would come to him by his death on the cross. And the way we receive that gift of life that he offers us and that gift of joy that he offers us is by admitting our need of it, that we need the salvation that only he offers. And we come to him 
and we ask for forgiveness of our sins and we receive the gift that he gives us. Say, I believe in what you did for me on the cross and I want, I want you in my life. And maybe as we pray in just a few moments, you, you would want to put that into words in some way on your own, that decision that you want to put your faith in Jesus as well. Christians, we have something called the gospel that literally means good news. This is news that brings joy. So let us live this out. Let us experience this. Let us stay connected to Jesus. Let us obey him because that's the way that we show love for him. Anything in our life that's cropped up, that's, that's areas where we're disobeying him, let's repent of those things and give those over to him and lay them at the foot of the cross. Let's pursue him. We, the world needs more joy. You need more joy. The closer you are to Jesus, the more you experience the thing that only Jesus offers. The world needs people who live out of a place of that kind of joy. I'm going to light our Advent candle that represents the joy of the Lord. And then I'm going to close uh, our time out in prayer. pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for what we've been able to consider this morning about how you truly do bring joy to the world. And it is through a relationship with you that we can know this joy most fully. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody here today who has yet to put their faith in you. Lord, right now, welcome them into your family. May they say just right there where they're at even, Lord, just a simple prayer that says, I I want that. God, I invite you into my life. I receive you. Forgive me of my sins or whatever it might be, Lord. Bring, welcome people into your family that need to be in your family. The world promises things it cannot deliver. You promise us what you do deliver. Life and eternity with you, but also a fullness of life on this side of eternity that we experience, the, the, the more we experience as we grow closer and closer to you. You have come to bring life and life to the full. And so, Lord, may we drink deeply of that. May we receive that. May we experience that. May that reflect our reality. We are grateful for the good news of the gospel, Lord, that you came to bring us life. And what we celebrate during this Christmas season, this idea of the incarnation, this gift of your son coming into this world. I pray that you'd help us to celebrate well. Lord, your word even talks about this idea of rejoicing as a, as a, as a decision, that we will practice joy. We will lift up our voices in joy. We're going to have an opportunity to do that again this morning. And so, Lord, we thank you for your, your truths, and we thank you for this good news. We love you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.